Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. The clock is ticking on TikTok. Okay. (laughs) I know, I know. It's a horrible pun, but I had to make it. I just had to go there. The clock is actually ticking. So TikTok, the social media platform that has about 800 million users worldwide, has to be bought by an American company by September 15th or else it will be banned in the U.S. Microsoft is currently talking with ByteDance, the Chinese company who owns TikTok, to see if they can acquire it before the September deadline. The reason why President Trump says that he will ban the app is because it's owned by China, and Chinese companies are actually required to share any information that they collect with the Chinese government, making TikTok a security threat. So when you post a funny video or a dance video on TikTok, the app actually collects a lot of data about you. And I do have to give Klon Kitchen Uh, at the Heritage Foundation credit for all this information because I didn't know most of this until I uh, had a conversation with him for the Daily Signal podcast. And that interview went live on Monday, if you're interested. Klon said during our conversation that TikTok collects data, uh, not just on your good dance moves, but on your geographic location, who your contacts are on your phone, your search history, your user habits. And all of that information is stored by the app and is made available to the Chinese Communist Party if they want to take a look. So I don't actually use the app, but Lauren, I know that you do. Are you going to keep on using it, kind of knowing this information, knowing that China has this access and information to your data? Way to call me out, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta Um, put you on the spot, Lauren. (laughs) You know, it's just... I'm I'm so like guilty about it because I know it's terrible and I really should delete it. And I think about it all the time, but it's just so entertaining and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, I've been on social media most of my adult life and, you know, I understand you, you scroll Twitter, stuff will come up forever and Facebook stuff will come up forever, but eventually it gets boring. TikTok videos. I don't know what it is. Maybe that they're so short. They just never get boring. And you literally, you're, you're like, oh, I'll just watch, you know, they're, they're 10 seconds, 15 seconds. So you're like, I'll watch two or three, a couple minutes. Like, <laughs> come to realize it's two hours later. And I'm like watching high school kids do dances. And I'm like, where, where in the world? But it, it's just so entertaining. And for a while, m- me and my roommate would like just sit next to one another. And we would just be scrolling and we'd be like, you know, uh, 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 have you seen this one? Uh, uh. You know, and that was like what we did after work. So, uh, I mean, I'm not usually like government should be big brother, but I think this might be one place where I'd be happy that the government would make that decision for me. <laughs> I, I just can't give up that TikTok app. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in many ways they are. Yeah, they're making that decision. So Lauren, for your sake, I hope that Microsoft is able to buy TikTok and that you're able to keep scrolling and watching the funny videos. I think I'm going to stay off because like YouTube is enough of a vice for me. Like I love watching videos. So I'm like, oh man, you can have YouTube on your TV and then be looking at Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I don't need that much content in my life. <laughs> All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up on the show for today, apart from TikTok? <laughs> apart from TikTok. 
On today's Problematic Women, we talk with Christine Roussel, a reporter for EWTN and Catholic News Agency, about why some states will allow protests but not funerals and church services. Plus, we do a deep dive into the latest news regarding the battle for women's sports and the transgender movement. Sandra Buca, a member of the International Swimmers Hall of Fame, joins us to tell her personal story of trying to compete with the boys in the 1960s when there were no female swim teams. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's go. We are joined by Christine Roussel, a reporter for EWTN and Catholic News Agency. Christine was one of the first people I met here in D.C. Unfortunately, now that was closer to 10 years ago. (laughs) We interned at different organizations, but in the same building. She's a great human, a great reporter, and also a great Twitter follow. Christine, I'm so happy to have you on the show, but unfortunately, I wish it was under better circumstances. Thank you for having me, and I wish it was under better circumstances, too. You lost a loved one suddenly, your dad, during the pandemic, and you wrote a really heart-wrenching article in the Washington Examiner that was called Burying Your Loved Ones During a Pandemic. I want to read the first sentence because it really just shows who you are. You said, quote, I generally recommend against suffering a massive cardiac arrest four days after turning 56, but especially during a global pandemic. It says so much about you because you maintained your wit and your sense of humor in the worst circumstances, but I really want to dive into your story. Can you start what happened to your dad and what your experience was in the hospital? Um, So on Cinco de Mayo, uh, actually, while I was en route to get things for margaritas and planning on having like a nice little, you know, taco Tuesday with my roommate, I got a call from my mother and I could tell right away from her tone of voice that something was very, very bad. And I actually asked if one of uh, my elderly relatives had passed away. And she said, no, your father. And then at that point, I hung up because my AirPods were disconnected and I didn't want to, like, have half a conversation. Um, And then she called me back and was like, "Uh, like, your father suffered a massive heart attack. He's at main med right now. Um, That's it. And I was like, well, and she told me that he wasn't conscious and um, that even though my parents were divorced for some reason, unbeknownst to her, my mom was my dad's uh, emergency contact. So she had a bit of a scare not knowing which John Roussel the state police were referring to because that's my brother's name as well when she got the call. So um, I was call- later that night, my mom called me and said, like, you need to get home as soon as you can and like tomorrow if possible. And that's when I discovered that there's virtually no flights from the D.C. area at that point going to Portland, Maine. So the closest I, I live, um, literally within walking distance of Reagan National Airport and there were no flights there were no direct flights to Portland so I had to get my boss actually offered to drive me to Baltimore because that was the only place that had a direct flight and I was on the first flight home it was completely empty there was like 20 people and then it just kind of became a a week of waiting and uh, we were not allowed to go to the hospital Uh, at the time people at Maine Med were allowed one visitor and one visit for the duration of their hospital stay and 
we couldn't go see him. We couldn't anything. And then my mom had a meeting with the neurology team and they were like, okay, so all of these scans show us that your father is severely brain damaged. He will not be waking up. These are our options and everything. And at that point, my brother and I elected to remove life support. But then um, my father actually made the decision for us by uh, becoming brain dead on the day that his life support was to be removed. So with that, sounds dark, but it was actually a blessing in disguise because that meant we could donate his organs. And so we chose to do that. That was a complete no brainer. And I was permitted to go up with my aunt. The hospital broke the rules to uh, say goodbye to my dad on the day that he died. And then we still haven't been able to have a proper like memorial mass for him. We had a very small graveside service on Memorial Day weekend. And even that was technically legal at the time. And right now the conditions that Maine has set up make it impossible to have a memorial mass or any kind of like suitable you know, memorial for my dad. Wow. Christine, thank you for, for sharing that. I mean, that, um, gosh, to go through your dad unexpectedly passing away at any time, just incredibly challenging. But then you add, you add during a global pandemic and it's just almost, uh, unimaginable. Um, Tell us a little bit more about the laws in in Maine and why you all were not allowed and still have not been allowed to have a funeral. So Maine was actually one of the last states in the country to have a positive COVID test, which I think is actually part of why Maine is reacting so well in a numbers base of our low number of cases is because our hospitals had basically a two week head start on a large chunk of the country to prepare and get things ready to go. And uh, so at the time my father died, there was the obviously the no visitors policy in the hospital. And I technically, my visit to the hospital was technically against the rules because I hadn't quarantined for a two week period, even though I came, like I've been isolated the entire time I was in Virginia. Like I'm a very careful person. Um, I actually, I wrote in the piece that I uh, told the doctors half truth because they were trying to like make conversation of like, oh, it's so, like you live near your dad. And I was like, I can't say like, no, I live in Virginia because they might kick me out. Uh, so I said that I grew up in my hometown, which is true, but it wasn't really an answer to their question. Um, so at the time my father passed and at the time we had his funeral, uh, there was an executive order called Executive Order 14, fiscal year 1920, which prohibited any kind of indoor or outdoor gathering bigger than 10 people, regardless of masks and spacing and all of that. Um, so actually at the burial service with my brother and I, who obviously like were his next of kin, like we need to be there um the six pallbearers and the funeral director and the priest actually put us over the limit of 10 people at the service and at that point um i hate to use this term but maine was kind of full of karens and um like my relatives even have been like even though they were wearing masks at grocery stores they've been yelled at by people for being too close and things like that and the state was just very much on edge and i was legitimately worried the entire burial service that someone was going to like call the police and report that we held a too big of a gathering size wow which was not great even though we were all spread out and wearing masks and like i mean the priest wasn't wearing a mask because you couldn't understand him because of the wind and stuff but he was also 10 feet away from everybody mm. and also maine doesn't have a lot of coronavirus cases and then uh after in june uh there was executive order 55 which raised the indoor outdoor gathering to limit to 50 people regardless of the size of the building uh, and that remains in effect. And it remains in effect even as there's been many protests for different reasons throughout the state that have not been shut down due to violation of Executive Order 55. No one's getting fined or anything. 
but we still can't have more than 48 people at church because the priest and the altar boy and maybe like a, 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 a cantor or a singer count as people towards the total, even though they're 20 feet away from the congregation. Yeah. And it, it's not a small church, right? It's a church that can hold like 500 plus people. Yeah. The parish that we want to have my father's memorial mass at, which is in his hometown, seats approximately, I asked a priest who used to be there. He said he thinks it's in the 600 to 800 range, but we're allowed 47 mourners. Wow. Which that's, I have more cousins than that. We're Catholic. Um, <laughs> and I mean, in, true. Yeah, yeah, I love it. But how, how important is it, you know, for, for you and your family to have a funeral in order to kind of create that closure? I mean, it's very important to me. Like, I know that I personally have been kind of delaying the grieving process because I don't want to get into a space where like I'm, for lack of a better term, like good. And then I have to basically reopen everything by having the memorial service and experiencing all those emotions again after getting into a better place. So right now I'm just kind of in, pardon the pun, like a set, like a state of purgatory where I'm just like waiting of like, well, like we're basically paused until further notice. And there's actually no plan in Maine to ever shift the state to phase four reopening, which would have uh, different gathering sizes. So what are your feelings when you see there's been so many public funerals that have been televised? John Lewis's funeral, George Floyd's funeral. I mean, on one hand, you're happy that that their family is able to grieve and and they're able to be honored. But at the same time, you know, your family isn't given that same privilege. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to begrudge either of them for having a funeral. I want to make that very clear. I also am not opposed to protests at all. Like if you want to, if you think that the cause is important enough to risk getting COVID to go outside and march and scream and all that jazz, you have the right as, you know, a human with agency to do that. Like, I, I'm not going to stop you. I would discourage it, but like, I'm not going to arrest you for anything like that. If you want to peacefully protest, fine. I don't care what you're protesting, but I just don't understand why people in Maine, like my family and otherwise aren't given those same opportunities to make their own decisions, to decide whether or not we feel comfortable putting a hundred people in a church that sees 800 things like that. I, I, it's un- interesting how like we're basically infantilized by this whole process by being told that we aren't smart enough to make decisions about safety. Whereas people who are outside screaming and protesting, there's actually been a week long uh, camp in protest at Portland city hall uh, with numerous drug overdoses and even a shooting that hasn't been broken up, even though that's in violation of executive orders plus the law in terms of drug overdoses and shooting. Wow, Christine, it really has been bizarre to see how Maine has handled this whole COVID situation. Maine's governor, uh, Janet Mills, she's she's done a really interesting job and she's made really bizarre decisions throughout all of this. Uh, Maine has only had around 4,000 cases in the entire state and less than 130 deaths. But the governor continues to really, really limit that activity. Um, and for me personally, it's been frustrating because I have family in Maine that run a small business. My aunt and uncle run an inn up there. Um, and I mean, they their whole business is really based on tourism. And, you know, Maine as a state earns a lot of its revenue off tourism every summer. And yet, you know, this summer, uh, businesses are just, you know, having to kind of hold on by the skin of their teeth. It's really tragic to see. Why Why do you think that Maine has been so strict when they hadn't seen a surge? Politics. I'll wow. be blunt. It's politics. Um, I was honestly giving Governor Mills the benefit of the doubt for a very long period of time. 
um, because like her job is hard. Like she wants to keep Maine safe. She does not want a bunch of dead Mainers on her hands. Completely understandable. But she put out a statement a week, like two weeks ago at the end of July that accused Republicans in the state of valuing Massachusetts money over Maine lives. And by, because um, the Maine GOP proposed allowing the outdoor and indoor gathering limit to increase to 150 if social distancing was possible which is what basically every other state in the region has, or is less than that even, and allowing people from Massachusetts and Rhode Island to come to Maine without quarantining for two weeks. And she had all these things. And then not even a week after releasing that statement, she herself upped the outdoor gathering limit to 100 people. So I don't understand how you can say out of one side of your mouth that like they're trying to basically play, they're valuing money over people and then basically implement half of their proposals three days later. And if you look at states such as New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey, which have been hit very, very hard by the coronavirus, they have their own restrictive tra- travel policies and quarantine rules. Those three states allow people from Massachusetts and Rhode Island to enter without quarantining. So like, I don't understand also, like, if you live in a county in Western Massachusetts that has three cases of coronavirus or some very low number, I don't understand why you would be banned from coming to Maine, whereas Vermont does things on a county by county basis. So they grade counties as red, yellow, and green. And green counties can come into Vermont, no big deal. Red counties have to quarantine, yellow counties don't. Maine's capable of implementing a system like that, but they chose not to. I was just really disgusted by her rhetoric of saying that they value Massachusetts money over Maine lives when it's like, no, these are common sense policies and what the state is currently doing is not what any other state in the region is doing. And we have very similar coronavirus numbers to New Hampshire, who has far fewer restrictions than Maine does. Well, I think what's so frustrating is that, you know, you value money over lives, but they don't think about how, you know, if you can't operate your business, I mean, you might not be able to feed your family. Like the money does affect your life in other ways. And we're not saying, you know, we want to open up the the economy. We want to open up the community and have everybody be exposed. But we just want people to make decisions. And I think another part of that that really frustrates me is with churches, that people are like, oh, you want to open up the churches and everybody dies. But Christine, I know you're you're a fellow religious person, and, and I don't think people realize how your religion is part of your livelihood. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's extremely comforting, and um, it's just very frustrating to basically have to apply. Like, in Maine right now, you have to apply to go to Mass through your parish. Uh, you get, like, an approval email if you're accepted. <laughs> I've heard anecdotally that um, churches are encouraged to turn off air conditioning during services to prevent the spread of COVID. I know the two churches that I've been into were not air conditioned the entire time I was in there, but that also could be because the building is so old and doesn't have it. <laughs> but I have heard from a, someone who doesn't attend my denomination that her her pastor was told that they had to turn the air conditioner off during service. Um, I went to church last week in a basilica in the town, the city of Lewiston that was seats 2000 people and every fourth row was open for seating. Like there was nobody within 12 feet of each other, max, like minimum at this parish. Yet we had to wear masks the entire time. And it was just a very odd experience because I don't see how it's necessary to both socially distance and mask, especially given Maine's extremely low case prevalence. Yeah. I mean, I did it, but I just, it was not great. Wow. Well, I want to end on a happier note, Christine. Your your dad left behind one thing I think that's been a, a great solace and comfort to your family and that's his dog can you tell a little bit about how the dog is doing last year my father decided he was adopting a puppy which was very out of character for him because we never had dogs growing up um he never seemed like the type that 
wanted a puppy. He traveled kind of frequently for his job. So we were a little concerned and he adopted this puppy. He named Ruby. She is a absolutely beautiful yellow lab. I don't like dogs, but I do like Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a little rambunctious cause she's seven months old and, um, she actually has an Instagram account if you want to check her out. She's rubyruth underscore the underscore yellow underscore lab. And um, she's been kind of this fun little spirit to have around the house. And I think she's brought my brother a lot of comfort uh, to basically t- be taking care of her and everything. Uh, and she's adorable. Oh, I love that. I'm going to follow her on Instagram. That's great. <laughs> Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if people want to follow your work, uh, at EWTN. How can they do that? Um, well, you can follow Catholic News Agency's Insta- um, Twitter, sorry, at CNA Live. And then our Instagram is, I think it's just Catholic News Agency. And my Twitter is uh, at C Roussel, which is R O U S S E L L E. And that's basically all of my social media accounts are C Roussel because I'm very boring. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you so much. We just really, really uh, loved having you on the show and just hearing uh, your personal story. So thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Stay tuned because up next, we are giving you the latest news regarding the fight for women's sports amid the transgender movement. But first, if you enjoyed the Problematic Women podcast, there's a good chance that you will also love the Daily Signal podcast. I co-host the Daily Signal podcast with my colleagues Rachel Del Judas and Rob Bluey to bring you the top news of the day and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. It's the perfect podcast to keep you up to speed on the daily news and give you the perspective of heritage policy experts as we tackle the big issues facing our nation today. You can find the Daily Signal podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So go ahead and subscribe today. At the Daily Signal, and especially here on Problematic Women, one of the issues that we are committed to covering closely is women's right to an equal playing field in sports. The transgender movement threatens to not only take away a woman's ability to play and win, but threatens the historic accomplishments women have made in a number of sports as transgender biological males set new records in many female sports across the country. We've continued to follow the personal stories of athletes like Selena Soul on this show, a young track athlete who was denied a spot at her championship meet due to a transgender athlete winning a previous meet and bumping her out of the competition. There's a situation unraveling right now in Idaho that really could be very critical to the future of all women's sports. This spring, Idaho passed legislation called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which bars biological men from competing in women's sports. But not even three weeks after this law passed, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against Idaho trying to get this law repealed. Now the American Civil Liberties Union is asking the National College Athletic Association to boycott Idaho because of this new law that does not allow men to compete alongside women. At the end of July, the organization Save Women's Sports sent a letter to the National College Athletic Association signed by over 300 female athletes and Olympians asking that the National College Athletic Association not cave to the radical left, but maintain their stance and protect women's sports. 
Today, we are really excited to look at the transgender and women's sports issue through the eyes of a woman who fought for women's sports even before women had their own sports teams. Sandra Buka is a member of the International Swimming Hall of Fame and attorney and Title IX pioneer. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Your story is honestly kind of the story that every little girl dreams of. You won nine different marathon swims in the 1970s. You set a number of records and you pioneered the way for women to have their own sports teams. Just absolutely incredible. So let's just start really simply. How did you get involved with swimming and why was it such a such a passion of yours? Well, I can certainly credit all of my career to my parents. My mother and father always believed that allowing all of us, uh, I'm the youngest of four children, uh, to participate in extracurricular activities would basically keep us all out of trouble. Uh, We had certain expectations to go to school and then to attend, um, you know, whether it was swimming or piano lessons, whatever it might be, something other than just sitting idle at home. I started with swimming in, in uh, around when I was seven or eight years old in St. Louis with, with a wonderful coach who just nurtured me and taught me how to enjoy this sport. And then I happened to um, move to the state of Illinois when I was around 10 after my father retired from the Army and um, began uh, swimming under the tutelage of Coach Don Watson I happened to move to a premier swimming spot in the country when I was 10. And he then uh, saw something in me, nurtured and developed my swimming abilities, and I started at age 10 competing regularly in age group swimming. So when you reached high school, you were doing really well in your swimming career, and you didn't want to stop, but the issue was that there were no girls swim teams in the state of Illinois. So you got permission to practice with the boys team, but you were not allowed to compete. Why was swimming so important to you that you were willing to be the only girl practicing with the boys? Well, by the time I got to graduated from uh, uh, middle school, our swimming coach, Don Watson, uh, brought all of us girls. There were a number of girls on the age group swim team, by the way. And back then, all the girls could do is train with age groupers. That's what they were known as, uh, different age group categories, uh, 10 and under, 11 and 12, 13 and 14, and then 15 and over. And these were age group AAU competitions. By the time I got through eighth grade, um, I had been able to start qualifying for some of the more competitive competitions. And our swimming coach addressed the girls And he said, you know, it's not fair, but this is what I am going to do. If any of you girls can make the national AAU cutoff times, I will allow you to train with the boys team in high school. Unfortunately for the others, um, I was the only girl that made the national cutoff times. So as a consequence, I was allowed to participate and train with the boys in high school. The tragedy at this point was there were at least a dozen other girls my age that all found their swimming careers abruptly terminated because by the time they got to be freshmen in high school, there were no sports for girls at all. 
except perhaps badminton, I believe, at the time. And they had no other opportunity other than to continue with age groupers, meaning young kids, to train and swim. So I was given an opportunity that no other girls in my high school were were given, which was the opportunity to swim with the boys. When I was given that opportunity, obviously, I I was privileged and humbled by the opportunity, and um, I pursued it as best as I could under Coach Watson, and uh, as a consequence, he completely developed my swimming abilities. So then fast forward to your senior year, or right before your senior year of high school, and you had reached a point where you know the training was good, but you wanted to compete. So you actually filed a lawsuit against the Illinois High School Association, arguing that you should be able to swim alongside the boys. Can you tell us a little bit about that fight and how it ended? Sure. For, well, for four years, I was competing in national competitions throughout the state, just on age group amateur teams. But I would be going to training every day before high school and then after school and train with the boys. Um my father was actually a pioneer in this as well, because he is the one that saw that so many of my friends, including my co-plaintiff, uh, Cynthia Cilio, were not given the same opportunity. And so we reached out to the ACLU at the time uh, to ask them to represent girls. And the, the lawsuit said basically this, if a high school publicly funded as it is, did not have a girls team in a non-contact sport, and there is a comparable boys team, then girls should be allowed to compete for a spot on that boys team with no special privileges of any kind. And the lawsuit was filed right around the time, and it preceded Title IX, and basically said, again, there is no basis to not allow girls the same opportunity as boys in high school on behalf of the class of plaintiffs, which would be all of the female high school students that wanted to participate in, in sports and were denied that opportunity. So the lawsuit was filed for that purpose. And it was uh, against the Illinois High School Association in the Northern District of Illinois. So I'm glad you brought up Title IX. Uh, it's the legislation which created equal outcomes for women in sports. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what it actually does? Basically, Title IX was implemented in, uh, I think it was June or so of 1972. Uh, again, almost simultaneously when, when we had our lawsuit filed. Title IX basically was enacted to prevent discrimination against any sex or gender based only on sex or gender in participation of any high school activities, including, in my case, it would be athletic activities. Um, there is no, uh, there women, women cannot be discriminated against or girls cannot be discriminated against, neither can boys, uh, but it was mostly to redress the past wrongs that were done to girls uh, by prohibiting them from participating in interscholastic sports. The interesting thing is, um, th at the time that my lawsuit was filed, uh, there were some interscholastic activities for girls. 
but they were regulated. They were regulated so much in, in many archaic ways. For example, you could have a girl's intramural team, but you could not have organized cheering for that event. You could have a girl's team, but you could not have awards that were valued more than a certain amount. I think it was a nominal amount of a dollar. They had these just archaic um, uh, rules that governed uh, activities that girls were allowed to participate in. Title IX saw a mass discrimination against girls, um, mass discrimination against any educational facility that is receiving public funds, it basically said you may not discriminate against them. And Title IX ended up saying eventually that you may not discriminate against either sex on the basis of sex. So I can see why, you know, women's sports might not have the same enthusiasm behind them and Title IX protects them. But why were there so many rules that really prohibited women's sports? Like you mentioned, the nominal dollar amount for prizes. I have absolutely no idea. Um, you know, you, you often look at, at um, decades of evolution in sports, education. Uh, it can be race, equality. There are no bases for some of these. Um, I, I think there was a time uh, similar to what happened, you know, at the turn of the century with voting rights, with everything, where the laws were um, enacted arbitrarily without really any in-depth reasoning. For example, with, with voting rights, women had to earn the rights to vote, as did blacks had to earn the right, not earn the rights, but receive the rights to vote. Why were these rules and laws in place? I have no idea. But they were wrong, and no one was challenging them until you know, efforts underway in the 60s. Um, you had the Civil Rights Acts in the 60s. Uh, you had many uh, young girls tr- starting to file lawsuits, et-, et cetera, as well. So there are no real reasons. I-, I found no rational basis for any of these, except perhaps um, for whatever illogical reason there may be to do exactly what they did, which is discourage participation by girls in sports in high school. Well, you know, it's amazing to see what Title IX has been able to accomplish for women. But right now, it feels like we're almost moving a little bit backwards. We're at this moment in history where women are losing championships, scholarship opportunities, and world record titles to biological men who identify as women, as being transgender. So as someone who you fought to compete with the boys and you were denied, what do you think about biological men being allowed to compete right alongside women? I have some very, very, very strong feelings about this. I have strong feelings about this because of what we experienced in the 70s, 60s and 70s. In my lawsuit, uh, the court actually found, actually found that men are by their nature taller than women, stronger than women, have greater muscle mass, have deeper breathing capacities. They literally found that there was a rational reason to allow separate but equal teams to be established in high school. Now, mind you, Title IX said you must have separate but equal teams for boys and girls. 
when I was competing, again, there was no girls team. But I had, I was told that I could not compete against a boys team for an equal spot by an equal manner to the best of my ability, strictly because I was a female. And the court found that there was a rational reason for that because boys biologically have a unfair advantage over girls. I accepted that. Thankfully, through Title IX and some similar lawsuits to ours, we eventually had girls' sports in the state of Illinois. Now, 50 years after that very law which was enacted to prohibit discrimination against women solely on the basis of sex, we now are discriminating again against women solely on the basis of sex. What do I mean by that? I have no uh, issue at all with respect to transgender rights, gay rights, all of that. When it comes to athletic competitions, however, you have transgender athletes who by their very nature are biological men, biological boys. And according to the experts hired and who have examined, um, you know, the, these studies over the years have uh, inherent physical abilities that are superior to those of a woman, a girl. When you allow them to compete or force them, force women to allow them to compete against them in a sport where they could easily be competing in a boys team instead, then you are once again discriminating against girls. You are by the very nature of their inherent biological abilities discriminating against against girls. And I find that very, very troubling. And I find if you look at what the effect has, it literally is discriminating once again against girls. Why do I say that? A transgender boy, meaning someone who was a biological girl that now wants to become a boy, does not have an inherent biological advantage over boys. So if you put that transgender boy into a competition, he or she will not be advantaged. But the converse is simply not true. So you're not just talking about this. You're you're doing something about it. You were one of 300 plus signers to a letter called Save Women's Sports, which was sent to the National College Athletic Association Board of Governors. Can you let us know what was in that letter and why did you decide to sign it? Basically, it is my understanding, ironically, that the ICLU now has also asked uh, here they represented me back in, in 1972, and now it is almost as though they've taken a completely direct opposite position to that which uh, they were pursuing back in 1972, uh, is asking for the state of Idaho to be boycotted um, simply because it is not allowing men to compete against women um, in in women's sports. Um and again, for the reasons I've already stated, um, that completely reverses 
the purpose and intent of Title IX and that for which I fought so strongly back in the 70s. Wow, that that's really wild that the ACLU, that they represented you, and now you're right, they're, they're on the exact opposite end, essentially, of this argument. Um, gosh, it's amazing to see how quickly things change in such a short period of time. Um, and like you said, so Idaho, uh, earlier this spring, or this past spring, they passed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act um, that pretty simply just said biological men cannot compete in women's sports. And not even a month passed before the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against them to try and get this uh, this law to be stricken down uh, and really almost like erasing part of, of Title IX and these equal opportunities for women. So you are a lawyer, you have that background, you think in that way. Could you just speak a little bit from that legal perspective of how important you think this lawsuit is long term in in setting you know precedent for other states who might be considering legislation to say yes uh, you know we want to protect women's sports from biological men. Well, I think what you have to look at is the purpose behind Title IX back in 1972. Uh, the purpose was to redress past discrimination against girls against women. And now what they are doing is not only eliminating all the progress that was made there, they are now regressing and almost ignoring what the case precedence was. If you take a look at what the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires, it is equal protection under the laws as they apply to men and women. Now, the issues with respect to allowing boys to compete against girls on girls' team or vice versa was all resolved back in the 70s. At least that's what we thought. And when when we filed our lawsuit, the lawsuit said, if a girls' team does not exist, then boy, girls should be allowed to compete against boys on an equal basis. By the same token, if there is not a comparable boys team, the boys could be allowed to compete against girls. That would be the fair interpretation. My understanding of what Idaho does is it doesn't matter whether it's you have girls teams and boys teams that are already in existence. They can willy-nilly decide to compete with each other against each team to get on the same team. And they ignore the inherent physical differences between the two sexes. It is unfortunate because it's going to impact girls once again, once again, much more broadly than it will ever impact boys. And, you know, my heart um, bleeds for some of these girls that I have seen. I've seen them uh, interviewed. I've seen how they have worked all of their lives for the past 10 years, for example, uh, with one competition in mind. It's a national competition for which they had qualified. And then now because of a couple of transgendered athletes that came in within the last number of months, they were displaced and they are no longer allowed to go to that national competition. That is a direct discrimination against those girls who otherwise would have made the team, been allowed to meet their dreams and be allowed to compete at the national level. 
that is inherent discrimination. And once again, it is reversing back to a time where only girls are being discriminated against. It's not the boys. It's the girls that are being discriminated against. We could talk about this all day. It's such an important issue. But Sandra, thank you for standing up for women back in the 70s. And thank you for standing up for women today. Would you mind staying on? We got to take a quick break. But for our next segment. No problem at all. It's my pleasure. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. Welcome back. Now it is that time of the week, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Sandra Buka. <laughs> uh, congratulations, Sandra. <laughs> well, thank you very much. My husband might say I, I earned the Problematic Woman Award. <laughs> uh, Sandra, you've accomplished so much for women in your lifetime, and you are so obviously driven, and you have been since you were little. And I want to talk a little bit more about what your swimming career has been like since, since barely missing the Olympic team, but you went on, you persisted, and you've had a successful career. Can you tell us a little bit about the marathon swims you've done and the records you set? Well, absolutely. Um, I was uh, actually very, very fortunate. When I, um, when I missed the Olympic team in 1972, and that was a heartache because I had striven, strived to make that team all my life. And, and uh, you know, my career was cut short um, because, again, we had no girls' sports. Um, I had gone to Stanford, believe it or not, and they also did not have a girls' team. No, Most colleges didn't even have girls' swim teams at the time. So the summer after my first year of college, I was reading a newspaper article in the Chicago Tribune, and it said that there would be this 10-mile lake swim in Lake Michigan in Chicago. Men and women surprise, surprise, would be competing against one another. And uh, there would be a cash prize at the end of it. I decided to give myself a shot at that. And uh, again, it's almost ironic that I had the opportunity in professional marathon swimming to do something that I did not have in high school. And that was my first race. It was a 10-mile swim in Lake Michigan the summer of 1973. And I uh, came in second to the um, world record holder in the 10-mile swim, who happened to be a man by the name of Johann Schanz. And he was a man, obviously. And there were only about uh, four women in the professional circuit at the time. Um, but again, we competed against one another for equal pay, equal positions. Um, and I was then invited into the professional marathon swimming circuit. I did that for the following two summers. Um, Again, I believe there were only four women at the time competing in professional marathon swims. The swims I competed in were in Canada. Uh, One was across a lake in Canada, Lake St. Jean. A couple others were 10-mile swims in Laval, Canada. Uh, One was a 24-hour swim in Latouk, Canada. And that's where I joined uh, with uh, John Kinsella, and we swam uh, 24-hour races. I was 
fortunate to place um, above all the women and, and usually in the top two of men and women uh, in all of those races. And um, I was humbled later to, to be honored by the International Swimming Hall of Fame and the International Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame as an honoree um, for the swims that I uh, competed in. I will also say, since the days that I competed, which were in the 1973, 1974, and 75, now there are hundreds, I believe, of women competing in the professional marathon swimming circuit. So I'm very gratified to have been a small part of that first uh, team of women, if you will, um, that was allowed to expand on a swimming career and a swimming opportunity that I had uh, that so many others did not. I, I, I happened into it. I was blessed to be a part of it. Um, it certainly paved the way for for my future years and allowed me to uh, support my college education and then go on to a legal career. I think it's so impressive that you swam for that long, but I think what I might be even more impressive with is how cold that water in Canada must have been. (laughs) (laughs) It was extremely cold. It was extremely cold. And uh, it's funny. I look back now and I think at my age, I like the, the warm water at my, uh, community in which I swim now, but uh, the community pool in which I swim now, but uh, it was extremely cold. And, you know, it's interesting um, because when I look back and I I think, you know, when we were given the chance to compete on an equal footing against the boys and we were allowed to do that, you know, that was just a privilege that I was able to, you know, have in the 1970s that I didn't have as a younger girl. And, and I just wish that that had been afforded so many of my colleagues back in high school days, because I guarantee you there were so many girls that I knew that worked twice as hard as I ever did, that if they had been given that opportunity, they too may have even gone into professional swimming, because it's not something that was well known back then. It is much more well known now. Um, and it, yes, it's an arduous journey. There are many uh, women that I know that compete uh, in professional swimming on solo swims and things such as that, um, that uh, I love to think that perhaps I was a small part of that as well. Well, Sandra, it, I think there's what amazes me so much about your story is that you you really did blaze uncharted territory. And that takes an incredible amount of, of courage and drive to really kind of do what what no one before you has done as a woman. For you, where did that passion come from? Why were you so driven to to push forward and pursue these opportunities for yourself and really for women everywhere? I give credit to my parents. Um, I give credit to my siblings. Um, I had a brother who was, I, I have a brother. He's a Medal of Honor recipient, and he's also um, always was my hero in swimming. He would always come to all of my events and always tell me that I, I could do this. He, he always told me that no matter what I did, I would, I would uh, be able to succeed just by participating. I had a father and a mother who expected from each of us three, four children um, that we would not fail as long as we tried, as long as we 
extended ourselves as best as we could in whatever it was, whether it was sports, academics, extracurricular activities, it could be anything. Their expectations of us were that we did everything we did to the best of our ability. And um, I, I totally give credit to my parents for that. So Sandra, before we let you go, we ask every guest on our show this one question, and that is whether or not you consider yourself a feminist and why. I don't like to consider myself a feminist. I consider myself a woman who loves this country and a person who wants to see women excel and be provided the opportunities that men have been provided all of these years. So I never like labels. Um, and so um, I hope that doesn't offend anyone, but I, I, I don't like labels. I, I consider myself someone that supports causes in which I believe if they benefit men, great. If they benefit women, great. If they me- benefit uh, the elderly or the young, great. Um, I, I don't like to label myself a, a feminist. I do appreciate having been provided the opportunity to help women back in the you know 1970s and and thereafter. And I certainly don't want to see the clock turned back where women that were provided opportunities from Title IX forward are now being discriminated against by the same folks that advocated for them so many years ago. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us today. It has just been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Well, it's been absolutely my honor. And uh, thank you both very, very much. It was a pleasure to meet you both. And uh, thank you for all you are doing for all of us. Last week, we announced that the Twitter question has now become the Twitter poll. But we did have a little mix-up last week, so you might have not been able to find the poll. We've corrected that this week, so don't worry. You'll be able to find it on the Daily Signal Twitter page, and then Lauren and I will also share it on our Twitter pages. But uh, we have a great question for you this week. Lauren, what is our question? Do you use TikTok? Perfect. Thanks so much, Lauren. Short and sweet. So the poll is up on the Daily Signal's Twitter page. And like I said, Lauren and I will share it on our Twitter pages. So go ahead and look for it and give us your feedback. Before we go, I want to say thank you to Rachel Lavender for leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And even more so, just supporting kind of what this show really stands for. She says, thank you for being brave enough to bring this conversation to the table. And we assume that she's talking about the transgender issue since this was posted right after the Abigail Schreier interview. She continues, this podcast shed an honest light on difficult subject matter. Keep it up. We're listening. Really, thank you, Rachel, from the bottom of our hearts. It just, you know, Virginia and I put so much into this show every week, and we do it because we love our country and we love women, and we really want to be there and be a support and just let you know that you're not alone. So for you to leave that review just really meant a lot to us. Yeah, we do truly, truly appreciate it. And we love hearing feedback from you all. Please do take a minute to leave a a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really helpful for us just to hear that feedback. Uh, And, you know, also, like, if there's things that you're like, hey, I would love for you all to talk about this or uh, to cover this story, like, let us know. We want to hear from you all. We want to know what you're interested in. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. 
Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week and weekend, and we'll be back with you all next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.